Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, is the light unto the world by which those who believe can see the world, and those who refuse to believe are blinded. We pray that we would see the world through the light of Christ, that we would be illuminated in all things. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. This morning we're looking at John chapter 9, and ultimately this, this miracle makes no sense without the whole of chapter 9, but I didn't really want to make you listen to 40-some-odd verses, so you have a handout in which you can follow along as we work through the passage. When I was in my early to mid-twenties, I finally broke down and got glasses. I'd been having headaches for a while, and a friend finally convinced me, you know, maybe you should get your eyes checked out. So finally I went and I checked and checked out, and it turned out that I needed glasses, as you can now well see. And it was so fascinating. I remember the first time I wore my glasses driving And all of a sudden, the trees had definition to them. At least one of you remember that moment as well. I I remember that moment, and and people I've talked to remember that moment. And it it was this almost overwhelming emotional feeling of, I can see again. and, And I forgot exactly how beautiful the world is. The gospel lesson this morning is about seeing. And there are many things that affect how you see the world around you. The news you listen to affects how you see the world around you. The friends you keep affect how you see and interact with the world around you. The entertainment you seek affects how you see the world around you. This is a fitting lesson as we enter into the season of Lent because it's a good question to ask ourselves, is there things that are affecting the way we see the world around us that impair our vision, that don't allow us to see by the light that is Christ, that don't allow us to see the world as God intends us to. As we read this morning, we pick up with a man who could see, who could not see anything. And we learn that this man not only couldn't see anything, but that he was blind from birth. And the disciples do a natural thing. They ask well, who is it that sinned? Now, you might be thinking, well, I never think of the world in that way. And you might not ask that question, well, who sinned to cause this thing to happen? But it's a very human instinct to look at something that's troubling, whether it's somebody that's struggling, somebody that's sick, and wonder why that is. We want explanations that help us make sense of the world around us. We want to be able to see something and know that it happened for a reason. And when we can't, it troubles us, like it troubled the disciples. But the reality is, is we may not always know why. Why that person is struggling, why that family is hurting. We may not have the answer to why. And and this brings us to the first impediment to sight that John points out. It's that we often have a preconception that something should be a certain way. And this blinds us 
to the way that God works sometimes. And we see this in Jesus' answer in verses 3 through 5. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work in the world of the works of him who sent me. Well, it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. A first overglancing reading of this might seem a little unsettling, but it reminds us that God can use your sin. God can use your brokenness. God can use your physical and emotional limitations. And even those things that look to be an accident to his glory. This doesn't make your sin, your physical limitations, accidents, or any other struggles that you might face necessarily good but he uses them to make good. If you're confused by this, think about Joseph. Joseph, who was thrown, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into prison unjustly. But finally, God raised him up out of the pit and saved not only his brothers, but the kingdom of Egypt, and we read the whole world. Joseph's suffering was not in vain. Joseph's suffering wasn't good, but God used the evil of his brothers for the good of the world and for his glory. And likewise, God is about to use this man's blindness, this hardship to show who Jesus is and to reveal a great and beautiful mystery. Jesus reveals in this part also that he is the lens through which we are to see the world. Jesus is the light, the lens which, through which we can see the world, in which the world is illuminated. And then we get to verse 6 and 7, and that can be a bit confusing and trip people up, so it's worth pausing on it. It helps us understand more as we move our way through. We read of Jesus making mud. And sometimes we hit these gospel, these miracles in the different gospel accounts, and most of them are straightforward. The, he says, you're healed, and you're healed. But then all of a sudden, he stops, and he makes mud. And we wonder, why in the world is he making mud? Before I tell you why he's making mud, I want to encourage you, when you hit these weird, specific points of detail, stop and ask the question. Sometimes they don't actually have an answer. There's, there's a part like this in, in Jeremiah where Jeremiah says something about a cucumber field. And I, I asked my professor who knew way, way, way more about Jeremiah, who spent his entire life studying Jeremiah, why in the world the cucumber field? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> so the reality is that sometimes we don't know why it is, but, but still ask that question because sometimes it reveals something really, really important. And that's the case with both the mud and the pool of Siloam. So the mud, if you think about the act of making mud, you get the dirt wet. If you, we get this image of him bending down and doing this, but you get the dirt wet, and then to order to make mud, you've got to work the mud. You have to knead it. And I'm going to leave you with that image for now because it'll be important about five minutes, this image of Jesus kneading the mud. And so then he tells then he tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And again, this is a weirdly specific detail. But the pool of Siloam was fed by the same waters in which they would have drawn up water to make themselves ceremonially clean to go and worship in the temple. And so suddenly, 
we realize John is foreshadowing something way, way more important than simply a physical healing. In washing off this mud, in washing himself in the pool of Siloam, the man becomes not only physically healed, but ceremonially, ceremonially, there we go, clean. As we move on, we get to his neighbors. And I, I, as I was reading this, I remembered after I got my glasses, I, I had grown a beard out as well. And I saw a man that I had gone to church with a couple years beforehand. We weren't close, but we would have conversations after church. And it was a very friendly type thing. And I said hello to him. And he just looked at me and was like, hi, who are you? And I had changed so much. And we've seen this with other people, right? Somebody grows a big beard or shaves their beard or dyes their hair, or gains a bunch of weight, or loses a bunch of weight, and suddenly it's almost like, I know you, but why do I know you? And this is what happens with this man. Somehow he's so radically changed by gaining his sight that his neighbors and those who would regularly see him beg are like, he looks familiar, but there's no way that could be that person. He can see he's walking around on his own. He's not begging. He's so different, and the neighbors are baffled. And it seems like there's a split between the neighbors. Some of them believe, yes, this is that man. And some of them are like, no way, that's, that's not at all possible. And this gets to that second, the second point of hindrance in seeing by Christ, and that is disbelief. I assure you that the gospel can be shocking to many How could God use someone such as me? How could God save me? How could God redeem me? How could God call me to this thing? It may seem like disbelief, but don't let disbelief block you from seeing by the light of Christ. So the neighbors that are like, all right, I I believe you, first kind of want to see this man, want to see Jesus and and ask him, well, what in the world happened? But the man doesn't know where Jesus, so they take him to the Pharisees. And on a a, a surface level reading, this might seem kind of nefarious because we know, well, the Pharisees and Jesus don't get along. That's not very nice of you to set this man up like that. But that's not what's happening here, right? This is like more you you win or you inherit a million dollars. Hopefully one of the first calls that you're going to make is to your accountant. You're not going to just guess, oh, I'm going to do this and this, and I hope it'll be okay. You're going to call an expert and say, hey, I just had this windfall of money. Help me be responsible with it so that by next year I haven't spent a million dollars, but I can help this make me through the rest of my life. That's basically what they're doing. They're not like telling on this man. They, They want to understand, why does this man see suddenly? This shouldn't have happened. What is God doing here? And so to understand what the Pharisees do, I, I, a little story might be helpful. One of my professors told this story, the sort of metaphor of hiring a driver. You want to hire a driver to drive you along the edge of a canyon or a cliff. Canyons are more appropriate here in Arizona. So you interview the first driver, and he's like, well, I will drive you 10 feet away. You'll be nice and safe. You know, you'll be able to see the cliff. It'll be really pretty, but you know, you're, you're going to be plenty far away. You interview the second driver, and the second driver's like, well, I'm going to drive you five feet from the edge of the cliff. I, th- I think that's still a really safe distance. You can kind of see over the edge, but, you know, it's, it's safe, right? And then you interview the last one, and he's like, I will drive you a foot from the edge. 
and you'll be able to see over the cliff. You'll be able to see all the vistas. It'll be really beautiful. And the question is, which driver would you hire? And the point being is, how close to sin do you get? I always kind of thought that this was a bad analogy. I actually think it's more like you're trying to figure out how to walk along a knife edge. Because if you stumble off one edge, you're going to fall into this sort of licentiousness or permissiveness. If you fall, and that's what the driver is supposed to protect you from in the metaphor. But then if you fall off the other edge, you fall into this, this legalism or self-righteousness. But back to the Pharisees. If they were hiring the driver in this metaphor, they wouldn't even bother with a driver. They would hire somebody to tell them in the parking lot what the cliff is like about a mile away. Because they were so afraid of even stumbling into sin. And so in order to keep holy the Sabbath, which we learn it is the Sabbath when this man is healed, they came up with all of these laws kind of to protect around it. And so why did Jesus make the mud? Think about the action of making the mud. He, he kneels down, obviously, but he has the mud. He spits in it, or the, the dirt, and he spits in it. And then in order to make it, you'd have to knead it. And one of the laws around keeping holy the Sabbath was no kneading. No, no making bread by kneading. And so Jesus broke that by making the mud. He does this intentionally, of course, to call them out, and again, to reveal their blindness. And like the neighbors, the Pharisees become divided. There are some that are like, oh yes, this man is definitely, definitely from God. But the other half are like, no, he broke our law. He sinned. There's no way he could be from God. And this division shows us a third impediment to seeing by the light of Christ. And that is, instead of seeing by what the word of God says, we see by man-made moral standards. We can probably all think of well, what they do, right? There's secular moral standards that can be very distracting from biblical moral standards. And that is true. That can pre prevent us from seeing by the light of God or by the light of Christ. But there can be religious moral standards, just like what the Pharisees came up with. At one point, I, I talked to somebody, and I was talking about, I was kind of surprised how many young people in Prescott have tattoos. It's neither a positive nor a negative moral judgment. I was just surprised. And the person's like, I know, it's awful. I'm like, well, that's not quite where I was going with that. And I said to him, well, you know, even people with tattoos need Jesus. And they're like, yeah, I guess so. But right, you, these, these sort of preconceived notions of how it should be, these preconceived moral, no, moral standards that aren't necessarily biblical prevent us from seeing what the word of God tells us to live as. And so we ask ourselves this question as we go through Lent. Are we being blinded to the grace which we find in Christ because of some preconceived notion of right or wrong? Instead of letting the word of God transform your life, Instead of letting the word of God, who is Christ, be the light which can transform your hearts, your minds, to his glory. And now the story takes an almost comedic turn. As they say, it would be almost funny if it wasn't so sad. The Pharisees call his mom and dad. They call his parents. We already kind of presume that this man is a grown man. 
But, but they finally confirm it at the end of this paragraph in, in, um, in verse 23, right? They say, well, he is of age. Just go ask him. Don't, don't bother us about this anymore. And, and at first it seems like, well, the Pharisees are just eager to see how this, un, how this happened. But then they, they just can't, or at first they're, they're eager to confirm, well, was this in fact a miracle? And they ask them, well, was this boy really blind from birth and now he can see and so on and so forth. But then it, they shift to trying to, to figure out how this happened and what, what sin might have happened to have this, this, this come to be. And in the parents' response, we see the fourth impediment, fear. Fear often keeps us from seeing by the light of Christ. If you become a Christian, will you lose everything that you have? If you follow Christ more closely, if you use every last ounce of energy that you have from today until your dying age day to serve Christ, will people judge you? Will they love you somehow less? It might seem like what, for these parents at least, to give, they would have to give up their entire world. But if it feels like you might have to give up stuff to follow Christ more closely, what might you gain? So the Pharisees call back the formerly blind man, and they exhort him, give glory to God for what has happened. And it's not like he's not giving glory to God and, and so this weird sort of interchange happens. And the most fascinating thing that is happening in verses 24 on to verses 34 is that we see that the Pharisees remain blind, but this man now sees. The Pharisees remain blind, but this man now sees. And in their blindness, he kind of baits them. And he says, well, do you want to be his disciple? And it's kind of like that response where somebody's like, well, I love chocolate cake, and, and you snarkily respond, well, why don't you marry it then? <laughs> of course, he's not being that snarky, but it is that sort of sharp response to them to sort of call them out of their blindness, which, of course, therefore enrages them. How dare this man who was a beggar and a blind man his whole life question our authority? But the blind man knows, or the formerly blind man knows, that they are the blind ones. He sees the truth of who Christ is, and in verses 30 to 33, he has this most amazing speech. He brings out the logic that, no, this man Jesus is not a sinner, but he is from God. He says, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. All right, there's the fact. His eyes are now open. We know that God does not listen to sinners. This is an assumption that they made as Pharisees, and they wouldn't argue with that. But if anyone is a worshiper of God, he does his will. God listens to him. The Pharisees couldn't possibly argue with it. This would be something that they would teach. And then the, the blind man makes another truth statement. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Who could possibly do this except God? 
And so if this man, the blind man says, is not from God, he could do nothing. He shows the Pharisees using their own logic, their own teaching, that Jesus must be from God. And so it is that the formerly blind man not only physically sees, but he spiritually sees. And more importantly, he sees and knows that the, co- the cost of following Christ, he knows that they'll put him out for what he just said. And he knows that the cost of following Christ is worth it. And so they put him out. They pay the price, but he now sees physically and spiritually. So in the final scene or in the final paragraph, if you're following along, Jesus finds the blind man knowing that he's been put out. And he gives proof that what the blind man has seen, that the blind or said, is true. He gives proof that the blind man not only sees physically, but spiritually. Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, well, I don't know who he is, but I will. And he says, well, I am the Son of Man. And the blind man responds, I believe. And he worships him. Now, the final three or four verses are a bit confusing. And we want to think of another man named Saul. You probably know this story. But Saul was a brilliant, brilliant man. He was self-educated, or he was educated. He trusted in his own knowledge, his own learning. He was a man of the Pharisees. He was the best of the Pharisees. And because this, he hated Jesus and all who would confess him. In fact, we read of one account where he oversees the killing of one of Jesus's followers. And as he's going to another town to continue to persecute the followers of Christ, he's blinded. And he sees Jesus face to face as a great light. You see, what happens to Saul happens to us. When we see Jesus confront us, he is either the light by which we will see the world or the light which will blind us. Jesus calls Saul to follow him, and he does. And the scales fall off of his eyes, and that is now St. Paul, the author of so many beautiful epistles, the author who tells us how it looks to live in Christ. And so we might read these final three verses and say, that seems really harsh on the poor Pharisees. Jesus says, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see me and those who see me may become blind. Sorry, for those who do not see me may see and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees hear him, hear these things and said to him, are we then blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But I now say to you, we see, but you now say, we see, and your guilt remains. The reality is, is if you are walking by any other light than Christ, if you gaze upon Christ, his light may seem blinding, his light may seem harsh. It is by his grace that the light of Christ becomes the light which you can see 
clearly. It is by his grace that his life lifts, light lifts the scales off of our eyes and we see spiritually as this blind man sees. He is the light which you can live by. Don't let your preconceptions blind you. Don't let your disbelief blind you. Don't let your own personal man-made morals, stand, moral standards blind you. Don't let your fear blind you. But let the blinding light of Christ be the only light by which you live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.